I am Citizen 44. This show is sponsored by Small Portions Cafe, the book by Douglas Fergus. Doug is a very close friend of mine, and he sent it all the way from the States so I could have my own personal signed copy. And I got to tell you, it's one of the most uniquely entertaining, silly, funny, interesting compilation of short stories I've ever read. Check out Small Portions Cafe. It's available both as a Kindle and a softcover book. Small Portions Cafe on Amazon. You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aronsberg, live from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. People are asking me how I'm doing And they're looking me in the eye Say what you will about this trouble But there's a good side to bad times People don't come around quite as often Some of whom I never liked Say what you will about this trouble And there's a good side to bad times My baby, she's feeling lonesome She's coming home Our love is like an ocean When we're too weak to fight To get down to the heart You must leave behind your pride Say what you will about this trouble There's a good side to bad times Nothing is forever I've known that since I was five My sandcastles were so clever But there's a good side to bad times. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 97. My guest today is Rob Schlapfer. Rob is an information architect who organizes and frames information and ideas to be readily understood, making sense of things. 
Rob is also involved with teaching critical thinking for nearly four decades now. For the past decade, he's worked to bridge the partisan divide in Oregon through classes, talks, film nights, and community conversations designed to move us forward. Rob now leads an Oregon chapter for FAIR, F-A-I-R, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. FAIR is a nonpartisan organization working to create a common culture of fairness, understanding, and humanity throughout Oregon. FAIR promotes compassionate anti-racism grounded in the pro-human approach at the core of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. I met Rob about three years ago when he first did a show with me with Marla Estes. This was when he was working with her directly on a program called Bridging the Divide. In recent times, he has given up on that because he sees the futility in trying to bridge that divide. But he continues to work hard in his 60s, equipping young people with the ability to think critically and think for themselves. He's passionate about this work and is doing everything in his power to help those help themselves to see the world in a different light. I had a really interesting conversation with Rob, and uh, it doesn't give me any more confidence knowing he's doing this work, but it's work that must be done. And I appreciate and am grateful for Rob taking this undertaking of imparting his wisdom and allowing others to find wisdom for themselves. Also on the show today is my friend John Sabot. John's going to check in with us and let us know how COVID's affecting his area and what's going on with him in his new day-to-day life. I've recently been listening to Michael Moore's new podcast, Rumble, which I think you'll find quite interesting and fascinating. He's got great guests, and he continues to do the work necessary to inform people, especially the American people, about what's going on in our country, unbiased and factual, always factual. He just did a special screening of his movie Fahrenheit 9-11. I did see it when it first came out, but seeing it now through fresh eyes, uh, a little bit older and a a different perspective on life, I can't tell you how devastating it was to watch this film. He won the top award at Cannes Film Festival for it. Disney was going to release the film. They tore up his contract There was an article written in the New York Times about the film, and the film ended up getting made. Thank goodness. I can't even articulate my feelings right now about how I feel after watching that documentary. I'm devastated. Mere words cannot express the sadness that I feel about knowing that I am connected to people who will literally sacrifice lives for the sake of money. And none of that has ever changed, and I'm hard-pressed to believe that it ever can change. COVID is just a bump in the road on this American story that is filled with tragedy, selfishness, and greed. And I'm hoping that if you have not seen Fahrenheit 9-11 yet, that you will take this opportunity to see it. He screened it free through his new platform, and he's making a resurgence in American culture and making himself known through his films, his writings, and his podcast. And I hope you will take the opportunity to listen to Michael. Last night he had Sean Penn on the show, and uh, it was a really great podcast. They discussed all kinds of things, but the one thing that stuck out in my mind, which is something that actually escaped me, 
you know, I talk quite a bit about the necessity for a foundational and functional education that informs human beings on what it is to be a human being. I've gone so far as to take a recommendation for my daughter to read the book Sapiens, which is a historical journey of mankind from the beginning till now. And it answers a lot of questions for me on why we act the way we do, why our behaviors are the way they are, why we treat each other the way we do, and how this is seemingly an endless cycle of insanity. I highly recommend this book. Again, it's called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. He is a professor at the uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. This book has been translated into 30 different languages. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it really frames things for me in having a far better understanding of where we came from and how this is not only playing out now, but how this is potentially going to play out for every human being, every sapien in the future. I am not a pessimist. I am not an optimist. I perceive myself as a hopefulist, but that seems to be waning at this point. Based on what I know now, and the information I've received as of late, I am convinced that we will never do the right thing. That no matter what happens, no matter how much information we have, no matter what the examples are, that we will fail to choose to do the right thing. And that's a sad statement for me because those who know me most, or those who know me at all, know that I'm a very gregarious, enthusiastic, happy person. And I'm not saying that I'm not happy now, and I will always remain happy because I'm grateful for the life that I have. But knowing what I now know cements the fact that I have no faith in our species to do the right thing. I have no faith in the knowing that we will make choices that are good for all of us. I have no faith that my children will see a world where human beings come together and show mutual appreciation for us just simply being here. I have no faith. None. And that's not good. That's not good for anybody. The hourglass has got mere grains of sand left in it, and we can't turn it over again. Here's Rob. Rob Schlaffer, what's going on, man? I just made a wonderful cup of Chinese tea. I'm trying to get into the spirit of you being there in Asia and me being here on the west coast of the United States. It's wonderful to see you. It's really great to see you, too. As a matter of fact, I looked it up. It's almost exactly three years ago today that we spoke last. The last show you did with uh, Marla Estes, I released on August 15th of 2018? That makes sense. We were in the thick of our bridging the divide work back in those days. Yes, that is correct. Those were the long ago days of when Donald Trump was president. Remember that?
I was in Thailand when that happened, and I was shocked at the results. Although I'm not politically minded at all, I don't even vote. I haven't voted since I was like 18. But I recall a friend of mine, Mike from Canada, saying the entire time that this guy was going to become the next president of the United States, and everybody balked at him. Nobody gave him any credibility whatsoever, found it completely incomprehensible that it was even plausible that that could happen, even without knowing what an absolute nutball the guy was at the time, that he would actually get into office and become the president of the United States, which goes to show you growing up as a kid, you know, they say anybody can be the president. And you know what? That's true. Anyone can be the president of the United States. And I cannot go get a job without a resume and some pre-qualifications. So I think that whole thing is probably a bit of a problem from the get-go in that kind of open latitude of anybody being able to take over the free world. Yeah, I remember because I started doing talks here in Southern Oregon in uh, the summer of 2016, just before the election, talks to bridge the divide before Marla found me and we began working together. And so I had been sitting down and talking to progressives and conservatives for a while during that election cycle. So it wasn't completely a surprise to me, even though I was very progressive at the time when I started this, I began to hear a lot more and understand a lot more about what conservative folks were concerned about. So I wasn't surprised, but I can remember early on the talks that I was doing in 2017, it had a hard time getting anywhere because there was this big elephant in the room and that was Donald Trump just got elected and it's the end of the world. And one of the things that I had been talking a lot about in terms of understanding our partisan divide is trying to get people a sense of what the founding fathers had in mind when they envisioned America as a republic, not a democracy. And they were very concerned about the role that a majority can take in bringing to power someone and then giving that someone license to do all kinds of damage. And the one saving grace that I kept reminding people of is our government is structured to work very, very slowly, very, very difficultly. There's all kinds of roadblocks and things to stop people from getting things done. Gridlock is kind of built into the system, but that was by design. And of course, that was one of the things that the Federalist Papers, the Federalist 10, James Madison spoke a lot about, the need to restrain factions, the need to be careful about what happens when somebody comes into power. And I would say that Donald Trump was simply not allowed to do many of the things he would have liked to do because we do have a lot of checks and balances built into the system and that we can be thankful for that. Well, that may be the case, but I'm still an American citizen. I mean, I may be living full-time in Vietnam, and it's very sweet that people say because I love fish sauce and chilies that I am an honorary Vietnamese person now, but I am an American through and through, and I'm shocked at how stupid we still are, how thoughtless and selfish we are, how unevolved we truly are after hundreds of thousands of years of development. And I see us continuing to take one step forward and two steps back as if there's no work to be done, live for today, who cares what the kids have tomorrow. And honestly, I don't understand. I don't understand the lack of mindfulness around what we need to do, how simple many of the solutions are that we need to execute and our lack of cooperation and collaboration 
in coming together to do the right thing for everybody. It just makes no sense to me. But maybe the fact of the matter is, if only 1% of the world population is thinking outside of the box and is feeling a sense of global responsibility and a need to take action, or at least if you're going to be neutral, not add to the mess, don't right. do any more damage, do do right. nothing. I say do nothing. That's fine. I, I have no problem with anybody sitting on the couch watching Netflix all day. If you're not doing any damage, you're not adding to the work that needs to be done. Yeah. I'm hoping we don't talk about bridging the divide because I've left that world behind. I have given up on that world. But I would say this, defining what are the existential threats is a big part of the problem. You get one side that thinks this is what is an existential threat, and you get the other side that says, well, actually, no, this is the existential threat. And I would say oftentimes the truth is in between, that there are relative threats from lots of different things, but they tend to be invested in different threats that are around us. And if you're on the left, of course, you think humans are destroying the world with climate change and what have you. If you're on the right and you're an American, you think that the United States is being dismantled by the progressive left. Both sides have these narratives that they pursue. And I would say there's some truth in both of them. Of course, but what I'm concerned about is, is anybody thinking for themselves? Everybody is subscribing to somebody else's story, somebody else's thought process, somebody else's thoughts. And I don't really see people thinking for themselves to really drill down and have some contemplation time around, does it feel right inside my chest? Is this me? Is this what I really think? Or am I just following the herd into a mass slaughter? And that seems more the case. Going back to when I started doing talks in 2016, I did think called the Weekly Talk, and the theme of the Weekly Talk is think for yourself, think with others, dare to understand the world. Of course, I teach critical thinking, and I began to realize as someone in retirement, basically, at my age, that young people, especially today, are simply not being taught how to think. They're being taught what to think. And of course, our media across the board is giving people narratives as opposed to giving people a broad range of facts uh, with different weights of importance and educate people so that they can work through those facts and draw good inferences. We don't do that anymore. We just kind of feel our way through life often. You know, not that feelings aren't primary to some extent, but at some point you have to engage the prefrontal cortex and you need to engage in reasoning and evidence and arguments and kind of get a more objective sense of what's going on. And I just don't see us doing that. And I don't see that coming either. It's not like things are getting better. We're so inundated with information and digital distraction and just trying to make our way with the pandemic. Families are having difficulties just surviving. So to even think critically, it's more, you know, caveman. We've gone back yeah. to the amygdala <laughs> and we're living off an almond-sized brain as yeah. if we're all being chased by elephants and tigers and yep. we're not. So yep. I'm at a loss. That's the human default. And again, this is where, in my mind, we really have to teach critical thinking. We need to engage in deliberative democracy. We need to begin using our heads as well as our hearts. Both. It's a both and, not an either or. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I hear you. I, I, I don't know what to do, but just to give you an insight, one of the things I'm working on is I'm going to be doing a critical thinking class that I've designed 
locally for the Lagos Charter School. The Lagos Charter School here in Southern Oregon is the fastest growing school, I think, in our area. And it is a homeschool-based curriculum. And you have a lot of parents that are dipping into classical education. They're going back to some of the older models that taught people how to think more. And that's really good. But what I'm doing is I'm doing a class particularly for seniors and college-bound seniors to help them kind of navigate what we might call the post-truth, post-modern, post-fact world. And a big part of it is understanding where our minds came from, how our minds work, and how to engage in thinking to make good judgments about the world. So I go through the whole range of neuroscience and cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology and moral psychology and all kinds of stuff also drive kids alongside of that kind of modern science, bring in a lot of the ancient wisdom from the past. The great teachers from Confucius and Buddha and Christian tradition and all these different traditions that actually have a lot to say about how to live a life that is thoughtful, that is mindful, that is compassionate, but that is something remarkably more grounded than the way that I think we tend to live our lives nowadays. So I'm on board with helping us learn to think, beginning with myself. <laughs> yeah, well, everything starts with self. And if you're not well, you can't help other people who are sick. Yeah. And there's a lot of sick people that are giving advice and leading and parents who are sick, who are having children and giving birth to sick children. And that's a perpetuation of a catastrophe. And, uh, you know, I have some very smart friends, but sometimes the things they say are really dumb. And one of these things was, I said, you know, everything starts with education. It starts and ends with education. And they fight me tooth and nail and said, no, it starts with parenting. I said, but if a parent is uneducated, then they are perpetuating a lack of education. We need to properly educate people. Is anybody reading any Tolstoy or Huxley? Is anybody getting any really solid foundational bedrock information we're so consumed with entertainment and competition that we lost sight of personal development and yep. how to grow as a species. Did you read the book Sapiens? Yes, I loved it. And uh, another great book while you're mentioning it, back in the 80s, a book that I plug all the time, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death is a classic because he predicted with the rise of television culture and media culture, he predicted the dumbing down of American culture. I mean, the idea of having an intellectual idea about life is just not very prominent. I mean, just engaging our thinking, using our minds as risen apes, as sapiens, as those who are supposed to be wise. How do we gain wisdom? How do we apply all this neural circuitry that we've evolved in the last 200,000 years, how do we employ that to make better judgments about the world, to make better decisions, to do the right and the good as opposed to the foolish and the destructive? We're obviously singing from the same choir. I'm constantly turning <laughs> people on to Alan Watts. I'm sending people links. Yes. I'm trying to penetrate this wall of indifference and ignorance. And it's very challenging because we are in some very disturbing patterns and people don't like change and they don't even realize how easy it is to make changes for yourself. It's just a matter of making a commitment and then doing a little bit of work and on the other side of a practice is a much better life. 
but I'm hard pressed to convince. And I think that's the thing. What you're doing by teaching critical thinking is you're trying to convince. Jesus was a convincer. The convincers have all been murdered. Yeah. All the messengers have been taken the fuck out. Yep. And it's very challenging to even try and frame something in a way to not discredit anybody, to not make them feel dumb, to not push down on them because we want to raise people up. Right. We want them to be nurtured and know how much incredible potential they have, but that yep. they're not tapping into it. They're not taking advantage of these incredible opportunities for engagement. Huxley and Alan Watts were firm believers that the psychotropic age, which has not really come yet, will correct a lot of things if we actually make it to that point. <laughs> we need people to see yes. that this two-dimensional pedestrian thing that we have created is nothing in the scheme of the potential of what we can experience. And I really want to just fucking dose everybody with mushrooms or DMT to shut them off for a minute and then turn them on so they can actually see through their mind's eye that what they think that they thought that they knew was nothing and what they think that they've seen is nothing because what most people have seen is literally nothing. We've seen nothing. And it's so sad to me because fortunately for myself, when I turned 40, I went to Burning Man. I started doing all these psychedelics and hallucinogenic substances, and it changed my life. I had to see that there was more to life than the life that we've been told that we have. I just reread some Alan Watts about a year ago and hadn't read him in many years. He was a big influence on me when I was young, but the idea of cultivating intellectual humility... You know, the idea of recognizing how small we are and, and how large the universe is. I'm in my early 60s now, and the thing that I've come to realize more and more is I have read more and I have more knowledge in my mind in the last 10 years than in my entire life. And yet what that has done is it's convinced me that I know much less than I thought I knew. It's like the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. And what I'm doing now with FAIR, this Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, in the United States, we really need a better grasp of our history. We need a better grasp of what has transpired in the United States, particularly on lines of race and what have you. But I think that begins with a little bit of intellectual humility, accepting the fact that we really don't know very much. And how do we get people to open their minds and think outside of the constraints of their own thinking to take in new information, information that hasn't been presented to them before? And to me, it's a big part of the critical thinking focus as well. I agree, because we're basing our opinions on information that has come from every direction. And we don't have any leadership. We don't have any mentoring. 99% of 100 people don't know what they're saying, and you should not listen to them. But to find that needle in a haystack like yourself who has taken the time and the effort to educate themselves. And you and I are in the same boat. Alan Watts, in my own way, it was given to me on my 50th birthday. I had not read in 25 years. And that set me off on a reading frenzy that has never stopped. Yeah. But I don't want my children to wait till they're 50 to figure it out. I don't want them to have to live a life of misery, confusion, and not feel good and connected until a last minute doomsday kind of thing that temporarily maybe brings us back together. That's all very temporary too. 
whether it's COVID or 9-11 or whatever manufactured emergency someone comes up with to get <laughs> us back into the fear mode. Yes. This gets back to the great American experiment. And the whole idea behind the United States as the first real enlightenment kind of government was to build a culture on individuals, on individual rights, individual responsibilities, not family and tribes so much. I mean, here we look at Afghanistan today. We've invested how much in 20 years trying to turn Afghanistan into a liberal democracy. And yet the culture itself is tribal. The culture itself does not have that liberal kind of Western individual orientation that allows you to overcome the tribalism. And even in the United States, in spite of the fact that we were able to escape the tribalism of religion and family and ethnicity to some degree, we have this huge racial problem that really began to get out of control after the Civil War. America's race problem really didn't come into play until after the Civil War, which I think is one of the most remarkable things that you see the digression in our history from the, you know, the 1880s up into the turn of the century and what have you. And, you know, again, it's how do we get out of this tribal mode? How do we, in my opinion, how do we get away from putting the world in racial categories, in identity categories, you know, without kind of washing all those distinctions away? There's some meaningful distinctions there, but how do we get away from identifying with the tribe and with our particular group and really see ourselves as humans, as sapiens? We're all part of one human race. We're all ultimately related by genes and blood. How do we come together to forge a common way forward as human beings? That is my task in the last remaining years of my life. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut amongst so many other writers. Yeah. And read him a lot as a kid. Again, I didn't discover any of these people till after I turned 50. I discovered everybody after I turned 50. What I found in his books, a common element was he was not an optimist and he was not a pessimist. He was a hopefulist. I like that. And I put myself in that category. And, yeah. uh, and I feel that it's reasonable because yeah. he created great stories around the potential of solving problems. Yeah. But he knew inherently that human beings would not come to the task. They would not do it. They just won't do it. Right. And it's a repeating thing. And again, I'm not a pessimist. I hope for the best. But the writing is on the wall. We are committing mass suicide here. And the chances of survival is pretty slim at best. And it's just a matter of time before the earth is going to just belch us out anyway because of all the problems with climate change. We're either going to destroy ourselves with ourselves or we will be destroyed by our environment that we're destroying. Either way, we're going. There's no doubt about it. It's just a matter of, is it 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? And every scientist knows it. Alan Watts said, you don't write music to get to the end of the song. It's not about an end result. It's about the experience of writing music. Hmm. There's joy in the journey. Doing something creative, that's it. So I'm not looking for us to save yep. the world because we can't right. and we won't. Right. It's more about trade-offs, trading one thing for another thing. Well, climate change is a classic example. I am not as concerned as you are about it. I think it's more of a long-term thing, but even there, it really is a trade-off. One of the things that Oregon has done, which I think is foolish, it has said, we're gonna eliminate our emissions 100% by, what, 2040. We're going to be zero emission friendly. I've lost the exact language because it's late and I'm tired. 
which is just not realistic. There is no way at this point, unless we massively invest in like nuclear energy, there is no way that we're going to be able to run a modern industrial economy on renewable energy. And, you know, everybody knows that. And yet the politicians, because they have this concern, this feeling about this existential threat, they seem to think that intentions somehow are what we ought to be striving for, that it's good intentions that ultimately are going to solve our problems when we actually have to do something. We actually have to invest in some technology that can really replace the things that are emitting CO2. It's not just a matter of kind of wishful thinking. So let's invest in those technologies. And when we do that, then let's figure out at what point do you think we can transition to some of these other technologies? But, you know, it's a lack of looking at the real problems on the ground and just kind of imagining, well, if we set this goal somehow that magically we're going to transform the energy sector. And, you know, we have been talking about this for 30 years. There's been conference after conference. There's been the Kyoto Protocols and all these other attempts to kind of force the world to good intentions with reference to energy and climate change. And yet none of them have achieved anything because you actually have to do something. You have to actually create and build something. And I would say that's what we're not doing. We're not actually using the technology that we have. You're right. There's a lot of talk and a hype, but not a lot of action. I mean. If the seas are rising, why aren't we investing heavily in hydroelectric, sucking water out of the ocean, giving everybody clean water to drink? We're surrounded by water, but we're dying of thirst. We've had the sun above our heads since the beginning of time, but we still have not figured out how to leverage it for energy. Well, we may not be able to. It gets back to the intellectual humility. We may not be able to do much of anything about a warming earth. If, in fact, it is CO2 emissions that's driving it, and that is not a given. There is not a clear consensus on the degree to which CO2 is causing the warming. There's quite a split on that, and I think it's important that people understand that. Even the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they think it's at least half human cost. So that's the de facto consensus. There are other factors that are involved. So you have to be able to put all that out on the board. And I think one of the things that happens gets back to what I was saying at the very beginning. You get people that are entrenched on one side or the other of the divide on an issue, or say the political divide, and they're unable to take in the information and the arguments from the other side that are valid in order to form a whole, to find consilience so that we might make better judgments. So you get this standoff between, on the one hand, you get people here in Oregon. There is a contingency of folks who are alarmed about climate change. That's what the progressives here in Oregon are. And there is a contingency of folks who just don't really think it's a big deal at all. And I would say the truth is, again, packed into the middle there. It's something that we ought to be concerned about. But it's not necessarily this runaway scenario that is being presented out in the media and by environmentalist groups. Because for example, we're not really seeing any real significant effects of climate change at this point. The weather that we're experiencing now is fairly typical kind of weather. And again, that's the IPCC saying that. That's not some climate change denier. And a good reference on this, Michael Schellenberger's book, Apocalypse Never, 
I think is a great book that kind of points out these things. So toning down some of the rhetoric on climate change does not mean that you're denying the science. It actually means that you're being prudent and you're recognizing the limitations of our understanding and also recognizing that on any issue, whether it's climate change or immigration or whatever, there's going to be a group of people who are political who are going to exaggerate and overblow whatever's going on to pursue their agenda. You see that on the right and you see it on the left. And I think, again, the, the role of the critical thinker is to step back and look at all the facts in my mind and come to a more prudent judgment about what's going on by looking at everything and not just isolating the things that one group is saying as opposed to the other. It's like anything else. If you want to think differently, you have to train yourself and you have to go through the motions and do the work. I mean, this is the real job, right? We've created a society where we have to go to work and make money to pay to live. We made that all up. We didn't come here with any of that. None of that. We didn't come here with time. None of it. It's all made up. So if we can make it up, we can unmake it up. We can make up new things. What can a person do to begin to give themselves an opportunity to think differently, to become more aware, self-aware, and more self-trusting, leveraging intuition, leveraging one's own imagination, and be more critical and using discernment instead of just jumping from one bandwagon to the next? Well, I'm a big advocate of reading, as you can tell behind me. We need to read more broadly. We need to expose ourselves more broadly to information from different kinds of sources. I think we need to get out of our comfort zone in terms of our thinking. If, if we are a certain kind of person in our thinking, I think it's good to interact with people who think differently than we do. Diversity of thought, I would say, is much more important today than diversity of, say, skin color or ethnicity. You know, not all black people think the same. You know, not all people of a particular ethnicity share the same worldview. What really matters in my mind is this idea of viewpoint diversity, which I'm sure we talked a lot about when I was on with Marla three years ago. Viewpoint diversity is really, really important. And that means engaging with people who think differently. Again, think for yourself. You know, don't just take in what other people are feeding you. Think for yourself, be an autonomous thinker, but then go out and think with other people who are doing the same thing and are coming to different conclusions. Interact with those people. Uh, have a discovery session with those people. Be curious about the world. Read people, listen to people that you wouldn't necessarily do on your own. It's one of the things that I try and do in particular is read people that I disagree with. I read more people that I disagree with than people that I agree with simply because I already know what I think I know. I want to know more. I want my views challenged. I want the nuance to kind of get in there. So I'm a real advocate of reading broadly and interacting with a wide variety of sources and having those same kinds of conversations. Well, that's a really interesting strategy, which goes against the grain of everything that people typically do, because it's the opposite of what people would do as far as a strategy, because, you know, we play the whole team thing. It's a very competitive thing. Yep. It's okay to be wrong. I mean, except the fact that there's a lot of stuff that I believe that's probably wrong. 
I mean, I know for a fact that there's all kinds of stuff that I used to believe that I don't believe anymore because I discovered that it was wrong. And I usually discovered that by talking with other people who knew more than I did. So recognizing that it's okay to be wrong, in fact, that's a great starting place. It gets back to, again, people like Alan Watts and the idea of intellectual humility. To be free and liberated, to not feel shame when I realized that, oh, I didn't get that right. But now I have an opportunity to have a better understanding of that. And it's this constant moving forward. It's this evolution in our thinking. We're constantly on the go because that's what life is like. That's what the cosmos is like. That's what the biosphere is like. It's constantly changing, constantly moving around all the time. So I think we have to kind of go with that kind of flow intellectually as opposed to just stagnating by reading and listening to the same thing. It's like music. I'm a jazz fan. What I love about jazz is how many different kinds of influences are constantly being thrown into the mix. I think you see a lot of that with hip-hop today. That's not my genre, but hip-hop music does a lot of that same kind of thing. It's bringing in all kinds of different influences to get a different sound, a more varied sound. So it can be a really exciting process if you keep moving forward. I think that's the difficulty that we're having is this whole moving forward. We're kind of standing still. We're cemented. Our shoes are cemented into our opinions and we're not going to budge. Yep. And that's the way it is. And that's what I think. And I'm right. And you're wrong. Yep. And there is no winner there. Nobody wins. Yep. We can't make progress that way. We can't move beyond that if we can't move beyond our needing to be right. Yep. I had a big poster that I had done up that I used to put at the front of the room for people would come in and it would say, uh, what have you changed your mind about lately? If you haven't changed your mind about something, you're probably not thinking. If you're thinking about the world, you're gonna be changing your perspectives all the time. You're gonna be seeing things a little bit differently, hopefully better, getting more nuance, more understanding. And I think too, it's a process that ought to humble you and center you and make you feel more relaxed about the things that you know or the things that you think you know. And then when you get into a discussion with somebody, it's not like you know, you're in a fist fight. Because when I get into a discussion with somebody, particularly somebody that I know looks at things differently, I see that as an opportunity, not as kind of a dreaded experience where I have to somehow convince that person that I'm right. Well, you're talking about the difference between clinging and attachment. I like that. It's cat on the curtains, man. They can't get down. They can't let go. And people won't let go. And when you won't let go, you're going to drown. You're going to go down with yep. your own ship. But if you can attach and then detach in a healthy way to everything, then nothing can rock you. That is salvation. That is freedom. The ability to move around freely, to change your mind, change direction, because change is not going to stop. And it's a gift. None of this is punishment. The only punishment is clinging to concepts and ideas and putting yourself in a box that you can't get out of and that you don't even know for sure that you believe it's true that you believe it. So you're living a lie. Most people are living a 100% lie of their life, but they won't admit it and they won't do the deeper work to try and see if that's the truth or not. So most people are fucking miserable. <laughs> it is what it is, man. I met this woman online, a Vietnamese woman, and she seemed very nice and professional and we we're gonna go have dinner. 
And then like a couple nights before we were gonna have dinner, she said, did you vote? And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. She goes, I love Donald Trump. I said, yeah, I'm gonna be canceling that dinner now because I really, uh... <laughs> now, if I were you and I was yeah. an open-minded, curious individual in that moment, I would have went and had dinner with her to find out what is making this woman tick. Yeah. Obviously, she's living on some lies. And it would have been maybe pretty entertaining to get a couple of drinks in me and her to find out what this fascination was. But it is. It's about fascination. It's about believing things that you hear. It's hearsay. Most of the world is operating on hearsay and rumor, not fact. We could talk round and round in circles about the same shit, but it comes back to the same thing. You are at least doing something. You are doing something, even if it's one person at a time. You are empowering people to leverage what they were given when they got here, which is the ability to think for themselves, come up with their own conclusions, look at a variety of information, not overly subscribe to anything specific, and do what feels maybe right in their heart instead of right in their mind. Because logic does not always play out well, and uh, not everything is logical. There is a lot of gray area. There's no black and white. That's impossible. Antonio Damasio, the neuroscientist, he says, we're feeling machines that think. Thinking is a tool for us to help us make good judgments. But, you know, that judgment is an intuitive thing that we come to. It's not necessarily a logical thing, which is why sometimes I have found the people that I respect the most and have the most wisdom are are not necessarily the most educated people. I, I think educated people often are the worst because the more brain power you have, you know, there are actually studies that show that the higher IQ you have, the more prone you are to what's called motivated reasoning. That is, you're trying to find the answers ahead of time for what you already believe, as opposed to kind of discovering the world. So sometimes the people who aren't as educated, who are working in what we would think of as menial jobs, they actually know a lot more intuitively that is better for us than all the kind of rationalizations that we do. Those of us who are kind of educated can, you know, the kinds of conclusions that we come to. So I think it is more of an intuitive sense that we need to look to than simply an analytical, rational kind of a framework. I think you're right. And I do feel that because some people that I'm aware of who are very well educated seem to be the most lost in their own opinions and thoughts and are really irrational for the most part. They're not rational and they're not intuitive. They're the biggest story subscribers. Yeah. You mentioned Sapiens, which again is a wonderful book. And I think that one of the main points of Yuval Harari's work is to show how the application of reasoning and knowledge is a kind of a mixed, it's a mixed thing. On the one hand, technical innovation has done wonders for the world. We have a vaccine. How did we get that? That's the application of critical thinking, of reasoning, of science, and what have you. But look at all the things that we've also done in the name of science. Well, scientific racism. There's all kinds of stuff that we've done. So it's a double-edged sword. And I think we have to appreciate the fact that, again, our brains, we evolved this prefrontal cortex, this area around the top of our brain. We have these huge brains. We have circuitry that allows us to problem solve and think reasonably and what have you. But that has its limitations, and it has to be kept in check with other things, things like moral principles, moral values, 
how do we value other humans? Uh, you know, those kinds of things. So there's a real danger of allowing intellect to kind of become uh, an idol in and of itself. And I do think that some of the history of the post-Enlightenment West, which so many people are reacting against today, comes from a kind of a hubris of having all the right answers and the idea that science can do anything. And, you know, there is a kind of an arrogance that comes with having tools and technology and know-how. And certainly the West succumbed to that to a great degree in our history of building the modern world as we know it. And again, I think Sapiens is a fabulous book. Everybody ought to read that book to get a grounding, I think, in what it means to be a homo sapien. My daughter got it through her psychology class at Oregon State University. She recommended it. I'm reading it very slowly. Best way to read it. There's another one that I'm reading called The Weirdest People in the World by Joe Henrich, which would be a great follow-up to that, because he focuses on the development of Western culture and how is it that Western people, Western European people, are psychologically different than everyone else on the planet. It has to do with the development of our science and our technology, our individualism, our ability for abstract reasoning and these kinds of things. It makes us very different than people all over the world. It's cultural evolution that's taken place. That's got an upside, but it's got a downside. And I think we have to recognize both. And, and to me, again, I think that's one of the great messages of Harari's work in laying out the history of human beings to give us the long-term perspective and to show the things that have been good and the things that have been not good. So hopefully we can change course and do things better moving forward. Although we don't seem to be doing that. <laughs> you know, you can leave little nuts for the squirrel, you can't force people. You can only change yourself. You can't really yep. change anybody else. They have yep. to want to change. Yep. And I think language is a big part of this problem, too. I was speaking to someone the other day about the word tolerance and intolerance. And those are so far below appreciation. We've set the bar so low that we're only willing to tolerate each other. We've gone to a total lack of appreciation as a mode of operation, as if tolerance is good. It's not good. Tolerance is a weak attempt at allowing someone to be with a non-appreciative factor associated with it. And we need to step up our game and really appreciate this diversity that you speak of and take advantage of it with each other and we're not doing that. This whole idea of tolerance is a problem. One of my favorite things that I came across after I turned 50 was the Four Agreements. Oh yeah, I have it right over there on the wall. It's a magnificent little book. It's simple and the audio by Peter Coyote is fantastic. And I know that we're in an auditory cycle in the world. It's good to hear the human voice. If you're not gonna read, listen, also effective. We started a storytelling, talking. Storytelling is deeply rooted in our evolutionary history. The telling of stories, listening, hearing, having it enter the auditory gate first, which is closer to the brainstem, which is deeper down in our uh, neurobiology. Yeah, so listening to a book like that can be really powerful. It changed me. It, it yeah. honestly changed me. And even though I'm not conscious of it every day, it is my practice, and I fuck all four of those things up on a regular basis, but I'm aware of it. My downstairs neighbor, Harry, said, where does wisdom come from? I said, well, it comes from everywhere. It's embedded in everything. All five senses were created to take it in in some way, 
and it's up to us to identify it, to be on the lookout for it, to cultivate it, to contemplate it, and then to exercise it. But it has to become an effort on your part as a goal. It needs to be a daily part of you brush your teeth, you seek wisdom, you are on the lookout for people passing you messages. It could be a dog doing something. It doesn't matter what it is. Wisdom permeates this entire experience for our benefit, but it's up to us to be able to recognize it and take advantage of the messaging that's coming. But we're so distracted, we don't take it in because our stories are more important than your story. Gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that the intuitions come first. As human beings, we are feeling creatures. And wisdom is something that has to be embodied. Every religious tradition, there's indoctrination. There are things that you learn, you repeat them over and over again so that they become natural to you. It's like when you learn a trade, you learn there's certain steps. Like a jazz musician has to learn how the fingering or has to learn the modes, has to learn the chords. That's something that has to be embodied so that it's intuitive. You don't think about it anymore. So you're training your intuition. Intuition is not just just kind of doing whatever you feel like. Intuition is something that needs to be trained so that that wisdom is a part of who we are and it comes out naturally. Well, what you're talking about is the real education that human beings require. That is a fundamental bedrock education. Forget math, forget history, forget everything. We don't need it. If you want to go down that road, you can learn it on your own. Go find it out for yourself. But to find out about who you are at the core and how to operate at a super high level is the only education that we require. We need to know how to be human. We need to know how to take advantage of the opportunity to get information, to nourish ourselves, to be happy, to not be lonely when you're alone. All these things which are really primordial, they're so necessary for us to survive in a healthy way. And all the other information that we've been inundated with that's been imposed on us is relatively useless. I would say almost all of it is useless and none of the good stuff is getting in. We don't get any training. We're not trained. We're not trained to be people. We never received at any point in time an intentional education that prepared us to be human beings living on the earth together. And that's what a a liberal education was about. A liberal education was the idea that you go out and you learn history and all these other kinds of things so that you intuitively have a sense of what it means to be human. You have a sense of where we've come from and it builds character and it's shaping a life of meaning and purpose and what have you. And that was the idea, at least I think, behind the liberal education. It wasn't just simply, okay, I get a degree and you know now I can have a career and you know now I can make this amount of money. No, it was really more about building the person. And that included not just history, but included art and music, being able to understand music. I was born in the late 50s. So, you know, I went through elementary school at a time where most elementary schools, you learn things like music appreciation and uh, stuff that you just don't get anymore. You realize that being human was much larger than just the consumption of kind of raw facts about the world. Yeah, well, we're still shoving information down children's throats and they're living for the test. And uh, nothing, in my opinion, of value, speaking of values, 
These things are not being demonstrated. So you can't punish people for what they don't know. And people just don't know what they need to know. And that's the bottom right. line. They don't know anything. Yeah. And I mean important things, not about facts and figures and all this other stuff. They don't know anything about themselves. And that's a problem from the get-go to the end. And unless we start really developing human beings, this thing is only going to get worse. This is the problem that I'm dealing with now. And that is what we've called identity politics for the last couple of decades has now gone into the education system where... For example, here in Oregon, they just passed legislation that is going to shape education beginning with kindergarten. They are beginning to shape kindergarten students with a desire to learn about their identity, the identity groups that they belong to. What group are you a part of? And to establish group identity as the baseline as opposed to individual identity. So what matters now is whether I am a part of a group. Am I a black person? Am I a white person? Am I a homosexual person? Am I a transgender person? Am I a handicapped person? All of these different groups and then setting some groups against other groups, the dominant groups against the less dominant groups in this kind of a battle of us versus them. To me, this is very, very concerning because this is just going to add to the kind of tribalism that has been so destructive. Again, look at Afghanistan today. They cannot sustain a democratic order because they're all aligned to some group or another. So this identitarianism, which is particularly moving along racial lines today, is very disconcerting. For example, there are a number of schools around the country now who are breaking up students into what they call affinity groups. All the black students are going to go in this classroom. All the white students are going to go in this classroom. That's segregation again. Exactly. And I'm not some right-wing radical, as you know, but the state of Oregon is now condoning this kind of thinking because this is the ideology that's been coming into the K through 12 schools out of the universities over the course of the last 10 years. I don't know if you're aware of this, but at major universities, you now have a black graduation ceremony. UCLA, they have a black student union that they spent $50 million on. It's a student union at UCLA for black students and dorms for black students and white students. And I'm like, this is Jefferson Davis in the Confederacy all over again, but it's being done by progressives of the hard left. And, uh, and again, this is one of the things that FAIR, the group that I'm working with now, is trying to push back on because it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can deal with issues like discrimination and racial disparities without having to go down this particular backwards orientation. We can work to solve problems together as human beings, as opposed to kind of breaking everybody up along these kinds of lines. I appreciate you jumping on a call with me today, Rob. It's been too long. It sounds like not much has changed since we spoke three years ago. <laughs> it's gotten worse. Yeah, it's getting worse. I see no hope that America is going to bridge the partisan divide. I don't either. And, uh, I think we have to work with people on an individual level to help them see certain things for themselves. Yeah. And they have to come to their own conclusions. Again, unless we start dosing people, 
or given them some kind of electric shock, people are going to have to come to their own conclusions based on being sick of where they're at. Yeah. And that's the hope. The hope is they'll get bored of being unhappy. They'll get bored of the argument. They'll get bored of the routine and they'll decide that they must do something different because unless you make change, nothing changes. You must make change in order for change to happen. And it is the fail safe of the universe. It's been made very simple for us. If you want change and you make change, you will get something else. But if you want change and you don't do anything, nothing's going to change. That is a fail safe that's been built into this whole experience so we can save ourselves from ourselves. But we don't take advantage of the most simple elements in the universe that has been made so we don't have to suffer. Amen. Much love to you, man. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm praying for you, man. I don't I don't believe in prayer, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm praying for you, man, because I know that you're doing the tough work and it's incremental, but it doesn't matter because if you change one person's life, that's all there is. Begins with myself, yourself. Being in discovery mode all the time ourselves and modeling what it means to be a human being who is intellectually curious and compassionate. I think we really have to model that for this generation, particularly now that I'm in my 60s. I feel a real burden to be the change, to try and live up to the things that I think are important to model that because I think we need mentoring and modeling more than anything else. And to me, that's the even more serious work is walking the walk and trying to model for others how it is that we move forward, how it is we bring people together and have tough conversations, but work through those conversations so that we can go arm in arm, push forward to kind of work at some of the problems that we have in front of us. I'm glad that you and I got to connect. Great talking to you, Mark. You too, man. Take care. Hey, John. Hi, Mark. Where are you now in the country? Well, I'm in uh, Nha Chang, uh, or as as the foreigners say, Nha Trang. I'm still probably not pronouncing it right. And I'm kind of stuck here. I mean, like everybody is, uh, you know, we can't move wherever we are unless we want to leave Vietnam. You know, we got to stay put. There's no traveling from province to province right now. So um, I'd probably, if I wasn't here, I'd probably be either in Saigon or uh, maybe back in Da Nang. Um, So that's kind of, I'm just kind of in limbo here right now. Like so many people right now in Vietnam who are away from their family homes or, you know, their students and they're wanting to go back to university and there's no classes right now or they can't move because of uh, the pandemic situation right now. So, you know, I'm just like in limbo. The place I'm staying in is kind of small. It's modest. It's fine. It wasn't ever meant as a long-term place. So I'm just kind of making do with what I have here. Just like I said, like, and, and uh, my situation is far from being the worst situation right now in Vietnam. So, I mean, I'm still able to get food and, you know, I have a place to, to live. And uh, um, that's basically it, Mark. What are you doing about your show? How are you doing that? Well, I mean, I uploaded a, a, an episode this week 
And a lot of that material was recorded before social isolation. So I was able to get out and shoot a lot of stuff, which was good. And we had an opening again here. We've had some of the pandemic or Directive 16 measures loosened up. So we're allowed to go out now because I'm on a green zone. So we've been tested, I think, two or three times now on this street. And they go through a testing every now and then just to make sure that, you know, it's COVID free. And then in this green zone, we're allowed to go out for a walk and we are allowed to go to a supermarket provided we have one of these uh, shopping passes, which they gave me the other day. I got two that are good for like within a week span or four or five days span of each other. The beach isn't open. There's no restaurants open. There's no cafes open, but we can get some exercise. So I will be able to sort of get out and talk again. But, you know, it's really hard to do anything other than just talk about what the situation here is in Vietnam right now. Like, I feel stupid talking about all of these travel type related things that I've done in the past for videos. You know, they just don't make sense to me right now. And, you know, it's far from over everywhere. You know, almost every place has got a resurgence of uh, COVID. Canada, U.S., uh, you know, we have it, you know, pretty bad all over Southeast Asia right now. But um, say like with Vietnam, as bad as it's gotten here, if you look at the numbers, there's still places that are far worse than Vietnam right now with the pandemic. And, you know, the other question I'm sure you get asked as well is, well, why are you staying there? You know, well, I have ties here. And not only that, while everybody else was locked down, we were walking around, shopping, socializing for months. All, almost all of last year, we had no restrictions where Europe was buckled down, France, Italy, all kinds of problems early this year throughout the United States and Canada. And while all that was going on, we were just living our lives like there was no pandemic at all. So we, uh, you know, have had the luxury here in Vietnam of being able to live quite normally throughout most of this pandemic. And now, of course, because of this variant, we're, um, you know, we're getting more restricted. So you have to sort of put everything into context. You know, when people ask you that, you say, well, yeah, but I mean, we've also had it really good here too. Don't you think? For sure. During the first wave of COVID, there was some initial lockdown restrictions, but things really lightened up. They got a handle on it quickly. I actually was very impressed with how the government here swooped in, took necessary measures and got it under control. People here cooperated for the most part. And, you know, there wasn't any need for vaccines back then. There was no real testing going on. It was just a matter of cooperation and social distancing. And it seemed to take care of things. Yeah, for eight or nine months, there was no restrictions here. This city was absolutely 100% normal. But yes, things have changed drastically here. The death toll has gone up exponentially. The amount of illness here is off the chains relative to the size of this country and our previous experience. So it is way different. And in the most recent times that you talk about, you're able to go out and walk around. It's the only thing I want at this point. I just want to be able to go for a walk. You know, I live in Dachau. My regular walk is Dachau to Bui Vien and back, a round trip. It's about, what, seven or eight miles? It feels good. It's something I can do a couple of days a week. Even just getting out and going to the Circle K a mile from here to get some uh, Fisherman's Friend mints or going to the uh, pharmacy to grab some masks or whatever. It's a luxury to just walk six blocks. And I, I miss that. I just want the smallest of things to return to normal, which is going out to go grocery shopping two days a week. I relish in that. We've become so restricted. Our lives have been changed so dramatically 
that I will take the simplest, the littlest of pleasantries at this point. And I'm not complaining. I, I'm the master of adaptation. I literally live in a room that is 10 by 12 feet. I have a tiny room. I have a little balcony, thank goodness. I have a little bathroom. I'm still feeling that I am living the life of luxury, regardless of the restrictions. There are families suffering. We have nothing to complain about, and I don't. But I do feel horribly for so many people. This place economically has been shattered. It cannot take much more. I don't even know how people are eating, and people are not eating. They're not eating. We have not seen the repercussion of this yet. We have not seen the five years out, how this is going to play out with people that have had their businesses closed for months and months and months. We've seen no fallout yet, but we are going to. When I moved here, one of the deciding factors was Ho Chi Minh City was the fastest growing economy in the world at that time. It is going to take a miraculous rebounding effort for this economy to come back to anything even close to where it was when I first arrived. Supposedly on the 16th, things are even going to be loosening up here where we can get out a couple days a week and do some grocery shopping. But until the absolute official directive is handed out publicly, I believe nothing. And I hope for the best. How do you keep people working and then keep people from dying? It's not an easy position and maybe things could have been done differently, you know, a few months ago. But, uh, you know, that's the situation that they're facing right now. So I, I think they're, they're definitely caught in the middle of what to do. But I believe that you're going to see things opening up, especially with Ho Chi Minh City being the uh, economic engine of Vietnam. I was reading that there could be a world coffee shortage because of this, because Vietnam is the number two exporter of coffee in the world. You know, I've read those personal stories about the families and not working for three or four months and getting just meager supplies of food and things like that. And it's, it's very disheartening. And you're absolutely right. I totally agree with you that despite what I've gone through, and I've lost a lot of business in this COVID. I, I mean, I have lost a lot of clients because I was training tour guides around the world how to make videos. Well, well you know, what's the point of that if they can't have any clients or tourists, right? I've helped some tour guides learn how to do this type of stuff or live stream so they can make some money that way. You know, and then other personal clients I've had uh, that I've taught online, um, you know, a lot of that's gone away for me. And uh, it's it's not been easy either. I've, I've had a tough time. But regardless of that, I'm lucky that I have friends that support me and, uh, and followers as well that support me. That's been a really big help. And um, I've got a lot to be grateful for. The one thing I'll say, too, about these lockdowns and, and people feeling like it's prison and stuff like that, it's not prison, okay? It's, it's not prison for us, for foreigners. It's a lockdown. And, um, you know, I will tell you, though, like in this province here that I'm in and with these rules loosening up, like what we've done has actually worked. You know, they cut down the community cases. I mean, the population here is a lot smaller than... Uh, Ho Chi Minh City. So, I mean, it's a lot probably easier to manage, you know, because they don't need as much support staff or healthcare workers or military officers at checkpoints and things like that. It's a lot easier place to police. And I will say like, you know, now walking out and thinking, wow, okay, well, they've got the cases down. That's a good thing. You know, I, I was at a supermarket a couple of days ago and I wasn't allowed inside, but I could order on the outside. And luckily one of the men that was standing outside could speak a little bit of English. So I explained to him what I wanted and showed him some pictures. And he called out one of the people from inside to help me. And she wrote down what I was looking for, went out, brought it out, and I paid them. And 
73 people died in this province. And it's not a very big province. There's not that many people uh, here. I think it's less than 600,000 or a million or, or whatever in all of Kanhoa uh, province. And, um, you know, to see that, okay, you know, I had to make some sacrifices. Uh, it wasn't easy at first, too, getting caught off guard and scrounging around trying to find some food. But, uh, you know, going without for a meal or two, and I, I didn't have to do that, but it's not a big deal for me to do that. I'll just call it fasting, <laughs> forced fasting. So I have nothing really to complain about. And I could have left Vietnam. I, I could have left, and I, I didn't want to. As I said, I'll go back to before where, while everybody else in the world was locked down, and was going through all of this, we were walking around like life was normal. We could go to a cafe, we could go to a restaurant, you and I could go out for dinner in uh, Ho Chi Minh, and I have a lot of faith that it'll get back to normal. And this, this is not the first time this country has faced adversity and have come back from nowhere, and, uh, and I, I think they will as well. Because when you get to know the people here and what they're like, they might be broke, but they're not broken as a, a famous travel writer once said about the Vietnamese. And, and that's how I feel about them here. People need to get vaccinated. They need the vaccinations. We need to get this herd immunity thing going on. They will have no problem finding people that want to be vaccinated here in Vietnam. I don't feel any resistance to being vaccinated here. So we just need the vaccines. And I, I posted something on Instagram the other day, and I really feel strongly about this, that richer countries, richer nations, including my own, need to step up and, and help these countries. And uh, if you want to know, you know, who needs the support right now, look on the label of your t-shirt. Where was your t-shirt made? Look at where it was made. Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Bangladesh, India, all of these places need the support from these richer, more advanced nations right now. You want the cheap clothing the running shoes and all that, that would cost you three or four times as much if it was made in your home country. You want all the benefits of that. Well, you need to put something back in to that. The countries here in Southeast Asia, Africa, other places in the world, they need the richer nation's support right now. And we can't do it all alone. We are one and we can't be separated. Richer nations will be affected by poor nations' recovery. You want to send a couple million vaccines here, they'll get out. And the Vietnamese get them out faster than anybody else. You know, they can get over a million vaccines out in one day in this country. So you want to send 10 million vaccines here, 5 million vaccines, because we know you can afford it. Just send them because the people of this nation will accept them and line up for them. For sure. All right, brother. Enjoy your weekend. Happy Saturday to you and uh, all the best always. Thanks, Mark. Well, that was the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really great to speak to Rob again after so long. And I really appreciate and admire him for continuing to do his part in helping educate our youth and give them the opportunity to do some thinking for themselves. I also want to thank John Sabo for coming on the show and sharing what's going on with him. Power to the people, man. We need some vaccines here. I think that's the difference between... Vietnam having some kind of a reasonable economic recovery as well as just a general human population recovery us sapiens we got some healing to do here in Southeast Asia not that the whole world is not suffering but currently Saigon itself is completely shut down still 
And we're hoping that sometime in the middle of next week that we all have an opportunity to get out of our homes, do a little walking around, do a little grocery shopping at least, and get some things moving again because this is completely unsustainable, of course. I really appreciate that you listen to the show. And I know this one's a little bit heavy in the beginning, but we're in some heavy times and it is what it is. I don't have a lot of confidence in us beings. And uh, speaking of beings, again, I highly recommend that you read the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. That really is informative and has given me a lot of insight, even into global warming, where I don't totally blame us anymore. Clearly, this is cyclical. The Earth is going to do what it's going to do. As far as the actual warming of the Earth, that's not all us. But that doesn't mean that we don't do the things necessary to reduce the impact that we have on the planet. But you know what? It doesn't matter anymore, really. It doesn't. I mean, we can do whatever we do, but we're in a collision course and uh, we've just been irresponsible too long. It's the way it goes. Sorry, kids. Sorry, Zoe and Sam. That's just what it is. So live your life. Be happy. Do what you love. Be kind. Enjoy your experience and hope for the best. The clock is ticking. And like they say on that famous soap opera, like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. You can catch all the shows on CastBox, Stitcher, iTunes, and other places where podcasts are presented. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Additional music for today's show provided by Gene Burnett. GeneBurnett.com. Thanks, Gene. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. Thank you.